welcome back to Podcast 13. This week's episode is 207 for the team. So this week's episode was written by beloved writer Druzy Greenberg. He's actually written an episode before, so we don't have a spotlight for him, but we will be hearing more about his work in this episode later. His last episode that he wrote for us was episode 104, Claudia. Excellent episode. Yes. And now for this week's summary. Micah helps Claudia through her first case in the field as an apprentice. Pete helps Artie through troubles of the heart and appendix. And an old frenemy of the warehouse gets involved in a case. Oh, I'm so excited. So with that, let's get started. So we begin with previously on... And we get, I think this is a very well done previously on. We get reminders of McPherson and H.G. Wells. And I think this is a really crucial reminder that when McPherson died, it was H.G. who cut that jewel necklace off of him. So essentially she killed him. And then he died in Artie's arms, which was emotional for us, even though he was the bad guy. We also got a reminder that in the previous episode, Pete was affected by an artifact. And Mrs. Frederick is concerned about his anxiety, thinks he needs some time off. And so that's where we're picking up with Pete's storyline. And I wrote what happens in the opening scene, but the literal first thing that I wrote about this episode was, I forgot how much I love this episode. Wow, Micah is super hot in this opening scene. Oh my gosh, she (laughs) is. She absolutely is. I agree. Not that she's not normally gorgeous. I just, something about this scene, though. It's her height. I Googled her height in this scene because I was like, she looks so tall. Does she always look this tall? I mean, she is tall, but I I just... Probably because of the levels on the stairs. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, so we start at Lena's B&B, and Micah is escorting Kelly the vet. You remember Dr. Hernandez, but I'm just going to call her Kelly... She's escorting Kelly the vet out of Lena's B&B because Kelly has come and helped Pete the ferret. I was just going to say, she's helping Micah's ferret, who remember, Micah named Pete, which now that they're like best friends is even funnier that she still has a ferret named Pete. I know. I love it so much. And just as Kelly is about to leave, Pete rushes in like a child and goes, Micah, guess how many croissants I shoved into my mouth at once? So good and funny. And then I didn't write down all of the witty banter because we probably, I mean, we probably can't do every line of witty banter between these two. They're fast paced, they're funny. And it ends with Pete and Kelly basically saying, Pete says, you prefer the species that barks and humps your leg. And she says, well, I'm sure that's in your repertoire. Which is great. And also I just shout out to wing woman Micah who tries to defend Pete right at the beginning by saying, you know, the croissant thing is actually kind of impressive when you see it. (laughs) Just, which is funny because I can't imagine being impressed by the croissant thing. No. But Micah really, she tries. She tries so hard. And basically Kelly leaves and says, Micah, I'm happy to help you anytime. And then just sort of glares at Pete, implying not him. Yes. And just then... Micah turns to Pete and is like, what is with you two? And Pete just goes, she started it. (laughs) (laughs) Which is funny because there's a slight element of that bickering that Pete and Micah do. 
but we can also tell it's different. So I like I'm trying to I was trying to think throughout this episode of obviously we know the the trope of the Shakespearean Beatrice and Benedict trope of like the intellectual banter between each other because they like each other. But maybe one of Pete's styles of love language is clever banter. And I, I don't know. I have a very specific reading on this. And it's brought to you by the fact that both of my parents are the youngest siblings of their <laughs> Okay. There's a very specific youngest child energy, and Pete has it. And I think given where Kelly's at, which is we learned she just went through a bad breakup and is purposefully trying to distance herself from men who could perhaps be in a dating pool, I think that she is more aggressive than she ordinarily would be. And he is just in that youngest child mentality of, if you poke me, I'm going to poke you back. This makes so much sense. Nothing against youngest children. I love both of my parents, but there's an energy there. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So that brings us to a new case for Micah. And it is at a university in Northern California. And Micah sees it and it's like, oh boy, a wrestling team, which immediately makes Pete perk up because we know he wrestled in college, but he is, as we previously discussed, not supposed to be doing field work. He is on a break right now. And so Artie won't even hear it. Artie like anticipates Pete's objections and is like, absolutely not. They look at the file and Micah immediately confirms that they're not using steroids But one of the kids burst into flames, uh, so clearly this seems to be artifact-related. Yes, a few notable things about this scene is Micah, I wrote, Micah comes in real hot with the prejudice and immediately says, oh, it's a wrestling team, so it involves low IQs. And I was like, "Mm." sometimes Micah is super quick to judge, but I do like that she always changes her mind with more information. She doesn't dig her heels in. But the other really interesting thing about this is the name of the school. Miranda, did you look this up? I sure did look it up. Yes. So, Tamalpais University is not real. However, there is a Mount Tamalpais College that is real, and it is amazing. So, I'm going to read you the bio from that school's website. The mission of Mount Tamalpais College is to provide an intellectually rigorous inclusive Associates of Arts degree program and college preparatory program free of charge to people at San Quentin Prison to expand access to quality higher education for incarcerated people and to foster the values of equity, civic engagement, independence of thought, and freedom of expression. Awesome. Yes. So I do also want to shout out because I think educational programs and actual rehabilitative programs in prison are so important. And just a punishment system is is not, it's a problem in America. But what I do want to say is San Quentin is infamously a very bad prison. Yes. So there's a podcast I would recommend called Ear Hustle. It was completely produced and recorded by inmates in San Quentin talking about prison life there. 
And so you should definitely give it a listen. I'm so glad this program exists in a place that otherwise has a really rough history. And obviously mass incarceration, especially of people of color, is a huge problem in our country. Yes. And this college is relatively new. I don't have the dates down of it, but I, I did note that it, it hasn't been around for an extremely long time. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes because it's it's really important to have these kinds of... Absolutely. Okay, so what we do learn about the team in question at this fictional university is that that wrestling team has lost every single game it has ever been a part of for seven years and then suddenly overnight is unbeatable. I just like that you called wrestling a game. Oh, yeah. Match? Match, yes. (laughs) Just I am sports. (laughs) (laughs) For the five straight guys listening, we got you. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) So that leads Artie to say that this is clearly one of ours. And he says, Pete, I know you wrestled in college. What can I say? Irony is my specialty. And then just points at Pete and goes, grounded. (laughs) So they passed off the folder and Artie tells Claudia that she gets to go with Micah because Pete is grounded. And uh, she says, oh, my first mission as an agent. And he says, no, you're going as an apprentice. And he makes a quick off the cuff joke that, and you know, get a degree while you're there. And I like this. I like this push for Claudia that she is a young woman of college age and she's obviously intelligent and uh, that they, they want her to go to school, which is great. This episode in particular, not that it's not true of all episodes, I just really felt it in this one. Every character has such a clear voice and set of motivation. And the way that they care for each other is very well thought out. And in particular, for Claudia, I like that they aren't just using her for her very formidable brain. They're like, we value you, we like you. We also understand that you're 19 or 20 and have a right to go through your life. We're not going to prescribe you and overwork you like you're a 35-year-old with your life all figured out. You know, <laughs> they, they're giving her space to be. And I really appreciate that. Yes, I agree. And we quickly, you know, this, this episode really moves. Julian and I talked about it before the, the recording started. We quickly get that cut to the Chiron for Tamil Pius University and some great like exterior shots and i like the i like the college feel of this set decoration a lot and they're going into kind of like a gym claudia is worried about her outfit and i said welcome to our lives me and jillian where you have an important job to do and the day before or the day of your first day you should be worried about other things But as a a woman, particularly a tiny and younger woman, she starts second guessing herself, even though there's no reason to second guess herself or her outfit. I know it's it's super relatable. And I didn't actually take a look at how many women were on the writing team as a whole. But this is a detail that I would often see overlooked. You know, it's nice that even though a guy wrote this, he thought this out. And I thought that was, you know, nice. Also, in a nearby dorm room, a wrestler is looking at his very muscular arm in a mirror 
and it like literally ripples. Ugh. Like not like romance novel, like his rippling muscles, <laughs> but like it's actually like undulating and it's uh, off-putting. Undulating. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's that's the face you should be making because that's what it's like. <laughs> and they're kind of doing a walk and talk, and they cut through a locker room. Where Micah is unfazed as a professional and adult, you know. Claudia, though, (laughs) is very phased. She is obviously not super comfortable in a room full of naked men, which I totally get. And probably if this was, you know, real, it would smell terrible. And, like, the whole feeling of being in that boy's locker room is probably not good, you know. Or at least not for a 19-year-old who has, like, never barely dated. Well, a few things before we get there that really stood out to me. First of all, Micah clearly has, like, like she is trying to be worthy of having an apprentice, but not in an overly strict way. She's just really trying to be very by the book and lead by example, which I think is a really interesting starting point for her as a character, given where this episode goes over time. And so when Claudia is questioning her outfit, she goes, should I be wearing something more business suity so people will like take her seriously as an agent? And Micah says, you're not an agent, you're an apprentice. And just as that happens, the team wins. And that's when Claudia follows them into the locker room. But she's taking notes the whole time and like nodding very seriously. And whenever she's not looking, Micah is doing like a little smile, like I'm doing a good job. (laughs) I have like a little person to mentor. Yes. So they go through the locker room and Micah is asking some questions, but sends Claudia, she says, do you want to step out into the hallway? But where Claudia actually goes is sort of like the gym where where nobody is. Like there's, you know what I mean? Where, where the match just occurred. The match She's, just occurred, yeah. She just steps out of the locker room. She doesn't find like the hallway exit. She just goes out where she came in really fast. And that's where she sees the guy who just won the match. And he is kneeling and in pain. And Claudia, great face acting from Allison. She looks worried and really concerned about him. He says his muscles are hurting. And then we really see them like rippling and undulating, as Jillian (laughs) said. And it would hurt so bad. Like I was thinking of... I mean, if, you, if you've gotten your ears pierced or something, like, having something under your skin that isn't supposed to be there hurts so bad. And, oh, if this was a real artifact and this was happening to you, he is in so much pain. And then he spontaneously combusts. Like, it's really uh, upsetting um, that this happens in front of Claudia because... You know, Pete has a military background and the police background, uh, the law enforcement and secret service, Pete and Micah have have seen death and stuff. But Claudia is usually behind a computer, so she's really horrified. Yeah. And from there, we go right out to the opening credits. (laughs) 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 And when we come back, we are immediately back in the gym, but it's a little later. And Micah and Claudia watch from a balcony as the coach addresses his very shaken team. And Claudia and Micah have a serious conversation, which I'll get into in a second. But my note was, what is Claudia wearing here? And I realized 
she's totally changed outfits. Like, she's gotten a different jacket to be more serious. I'm pretty sure, like, the off-screen storytelling was, a person just died. I should have put on my serious clothes for this. And she, like, leaves. And now she's wearing, like, a little blazer with, like, a metal pin to it. Yeah, I saw that. And I just took note of the quote-unquote pep talk where the coach says, Philip would want us to go on. And I'm like, that is not the thing to tell. I mean, they're college students, so they are adults, but like young, young adults whose friend just died, like you give the team the week off. <laughs> like anyway. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know. I don't know. That's just something that people always say in TV shows, I think. But anyway. Yeah. Claudia is really hard on herself. She's saying she should have done something, and Micah's a little taken aback. She's like, there wasn't anything to do. And then Claudia goes, well, you would have done something, or at least stayed calm. I literally freaked out. And Micah gives her this look, and it's such good acting, because it it contains a lot in, like, two seconds of time. That It's very restrained. Micah's sort of suppressing a smile, and it's somehow communicating that she appreciates the compliment and, like, Claudia's faith in her. She sees something different in Claudia. It was like, it, it didn't occur to her, oh, this is what I, Micah, would have done. She was just observing the way Claudia acted, and she didn't see a problem with it. Yes. And so from there, Claudia tells us that she hacked the coroner's reports <laughs> and saw that the first death, which I like the way they wrote this, where Artie gave Micah the file, and we know there was a first death, but we didn't actually see it. Like, if this was the 90s, if this was Buffy, mm -hmm. we would have started with a teaser where the first death occurs. But, like, we jumped into the middle, and the writers had faith that we would catch up, and we would put the pieces together, and that we could get kind of more, like, deeper character storytelling than just the monster of the week storytelling here. So she says... And the exposition uh, wasn't overwhelming. It's like one line of dialogue. Yeah, she just says, oh, the fire started inside the sleeping bag, which again, we didn't know really that it was in a sleeping bag, but like this makes, th this is all we need to know. And then Micah and Claudia say, you know, it's totally shenanigans that there would be two unexplained fire deaths on this team and so they start thinking about what artifact might have caused such a thing. Yes, and just as they're thinking that in the spot below the balcony where they're sitting on the wrestling floor, <laughs> I sports, but <laughs> the coach holds out this metal and they all sort of grip it like, you know, mm -hmm. some sort of ritual as if you do it before every match and, you know, little alarm bells sort of go off over Micah and Claudia's heads and they're like well we have our artifact and so they think that they know exactly what's going on Micah asks Claudia to follow up with the wrestling team and she is going to follow up with the coach and it was so relatable I was so happy about this because there's an episode of the office about this too where someone asks one of the main characters to write up a certain kind of report. And he's like, yeah, sure, I'll I'll get on it right away. And he has no idea what the report is. <laughs> I think everyone starting on a job has a moment like that, where someone asks you to do something, and you just don't know what you're doing. For me, it was the first day I was working as in this, a production assistant on a TV set, and... I was told to go down and take production stills 
from whatever they were filming, which is, you know, shots of whatever they're filming to like put in promotional materials. And I was just handed a camera. I wasn't told where the soundstage was, how to use the camera. No one was told I was coming. I had no idea how close I was allowed to get. And it was just alarming. And I think that's, I feel like everyone has that experience of just being so out of their element and just being thrown into it and expected to figure out what they're doing. (laughs) Yeah, a great scene. And then we cut to the warehouse where this might be my favorite, like if we can make a gif of this, my my favorite few second frame of this whole episode, Pete, in his spinny chair, he is noticeably wearing, I mean, th- they're artifact glasses, but like, Eddie looks good in glasses. This is a great look for him. Yeah. And he has tape. <laughs> I've never done this <laughs> in my life. He has tape pulled out really far from like the scotch tape dispenser and he's just spinning in his chair with this tape (laughs) flying like a little flag and I like I remember this episode really well but I didn't remember this silly scene and uh it was just really funny and he's also listening to Aquarius from the soundtrack Hair which is like this super hippy dippy musical which also ties into his previous character development as a guy who likes Broadway Oh my and gosh, just, I didn't even think There's just that. so much there. I was just thinking of, because Artie immediately says, are those Timothy Leary's glasses? Which to me makes the music cue and the kind of like, you know, the what is it, 60s, 70s? Makes yeah. Sense. yeah. And he's also seeing Artie as a walrus, which I question, I think was a Beatles reference. Yeah, walrus. I, I am the walrus, right? I mean, it, it. there was just a lot packed into a very short space. Basically, Pete is bored being on desk duty, and he, you know, that's why he's doing these things. And they're about to kind of argue or talk about this. Uh, Artie takes the glasses away, but kind of hunches over and is interrupted by the pain of his appendix growing back. Wild. Totally wild. But before we can get to that, Micah is at the college talking with the coach, And she's clearly already explained that she thinks it's the metal, but hasn't explained why, and he is skeptical with good reason. But he gathers that Micah suspects his involvement and tells her that she's crazy. And can I just, because we had that shed a tear idiom last week. Another funny idiom shout out. (laughs) The coach asks, you got both paddles in the water? And it's like... We know he's using a weird idiom, like, are you crazy? But what a weird thing to say. I know. But, I mean, it it was effective. I don't know. (laughs) I just like figurative language and thought that was really kind of funny. And the coach is upset and he's refusing to really work with her. Suddenly, enter a well-dressed suit man whose name seems to be Jeff. Yes. He approaches and tells the coach that he needs to talk when the coach is free. The coach gets right up in Micah's face and says, if you scare my guys, I'll have you thrown off campus. And I just wrote, I roll at male privilege. She's just like, yeah, like you would have the authority to toss someone investigating a murder off right. of your campus, whatever. The wrestling coach versus a federal agent. Like, ugh, whatever. Yeah. But Micah always unflappable, remains unflapped, and she seems thoughtful instead. And so then we go to Gary's dorm room, and I paused this because I love depictions of college in film and TV. Uh, We see a pizza box, a bag of chips, 
a perfectly decorated dorm room. They've got the microwave, the mini fridge. And then like, even I was trying to pause for words on surfaces. You can't really see the words, but you can see that there's a class schedule. There's some academic flyers. There's tons of takeout containers. The poster is for poker hands. Obviously there's two naked women, which were very racy. I mean, not literally, you know, but like very naked women posters that were. They're as naked as you could get on, you know, a prime time exactly. basic cable show. And then yeah. a sign that says Belvedere Avenue, which I assume all of our listeners know is a vodka. Like that's international. That's not just America. Yes. I didn't take note of all those things. All I took note of was <clears throat> the fact that the room was very small, which made me happy because sometimes when you see American dorm rooms on TV and movies, you're like, why does this look like an apartment? It's the size of a shoebox in these things. Yes, I agree. It was the correct size for a California dorm room. And like, I mean... On the East Coast, they're even smaller. Like, at, dorm rooms are tiny. Never depict them as big. Well, Claudia arrives, and you know, she's got a notepad. She's looking very serious. She's wearing her serious coat. And she starts asking Gary questions about the coach. Gary immediately gets defensive about the coach. In Gary's dorm room, Claudia starts asking Gary questions about the coach, if he's under too much pressure, how they started winning so quickly. Gary immediately gets defensive and says that he's not under too much pressure. And anyway, when you're in sports, pressure is good because it helps you win. And Claudia really isn't controlling the conversation the way that she feels she should be. And she immediately gets pretty flustered and Gary asks if she's okay and that she seems new at this. Mm -hmm. And she just deflates. And, you know, because it is sweet. He's not trying to be a jerk about it. He's like, are, are you okay? You, you do seem a little new at this. And she's like, Ugh. so clearly he's able to tell that Micah sent her there. Hey, are you that other lady's assistant? Claudia says some stuff very rapidly, indicating that she's parroting things that Micah told her to do and say. She says, I'm just observing, analyzing the facts, supposing possible and then she just sort of peters out and leaves and says she'll circle back if she thinks of anything yeah from there we go back to the warehouse where a nice lady doctor who we learn is named dr vanessa calder is examining Artie because of the aforementioned appendix <laughs> he wants to know more about the fact that the warehouse has its own doctor and Artie makes yet another reference to the manual like oh it's in this specific chapter etc etc and i will take this opportunity to do an actor's spotlight so vanessa calder is played by lindsay wagner she is best known for her leading role as jamie summers in the tv series the bionic woman which ran from 1976 to 1978 and was spin-off of the six million dollar man uh, she won a Primetime Emmy Award for that role, Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series in 1977. And a sort of Easter egg that we're going to get throughout this episode is that in the 80s, she co-authored a series of books about the 
benefits of acupuncture, specifically how it can help with anti-aging in your face and your certain touch points. So we're going to see. Well, she's very, well, she's aged very gracefully. Absolutely. She's a beautiful, just like older, but not at all old woman in this episode. Yeah. And clearly she was onto something. And I think this is fairly well known because we get that continually referenced of Artie being like, yes, I'll work my my touch points. I'll, I'll do the things. I forget what he, he calls them. Lindsay Wagner did continue acting throughout the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. More recently, she had a role in Grey's Anatomy as Helen Karev, the mother to Alex Karev. And uh, the Warehouse 13 role is also on her list of well-known, you know, parts. And the best funnest thing I learned in my actor's spotlight research is that starting in 2013, she taught acting and directing at San Bernardino Valley College, which is literally right down the street from where I live. So she was an adjunct community college professor, very much like myself. That's so cool. So yeah, I think she did that for like five-ish years. That's about what I could find on the internet. But she has had a varied career and done a lot of cool things. And she's a great actress. She really does awesome as this Dr. Calder. And we like her as a possible love interest for Artie. Yeah, she's one of my favorite, spoiler alert, recurring characters. Yeah. So that is our actor's spotlight. Yes. Meanwhile, Pete says he hasn't gotten to that particular point in the manual, <laughs> and <laughs> Artie is try- clearly trying to get rid of him and says, well, go read it now. And Pete says, I was hoping you'd read it to me, Papa, which is so such funny. a weird take. <laughs> no, I love it. I love I love it. It's good. I love picturing Artie as like a grandpa reading to little baby Pete. <laughs> it's like, it's so funny because Pete is such a grown man. Like, he's not old in this show by any means, but he's clearly not, you know, the young 20-something actor they cast, like, right out of college. <laughs> he's, it's like, the idea of him sitting on Artie's knee is so funny to me. It's also funny because Pete is a huge buff guy and Artie is a somewhat small guy. <laughs> yes! Uh, it's just, all the visuals that it conjures up are great. Vanessa changes the subject and tells Artie that his appendix is the highlight of her year because it apparently grows back every year. And Pete's line, what's the rest of your year like? Just made <laughs> yes. me like snort out loud. It was so good. And Artie is clearly like wants Pete to get out of here. He's like, no, absolutely not. Like you're the worst. Even though obviously we know Artie loves Pete. Yes. And Vanessa says not to worry. She'll remove the appendix prophylactically because it has a tendency to burst. It has a tendency to get appendicitis. And Pete is a child who laughs at the word prophylactically. Listeners, I am so sorry. My dog is he snort. a lot right now. He's snorting. He wants to be a part of this podcast. I'm very <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and yes, and, uh, when Vanessa is talking to Artie about his health, that's where she says, have you been pressing on the acupuncture points? And he lies and she immediately knows he's lying. And he blows into a funny harmonica, like giving us the idea that this is not a regular medical doctor, but a a warehousey artifact doctor. And once she kind of rushes off, Pete comes over and says, are Vanessa and Artie sitting in a tree? 
and continues with that bit of you want to you like her you want to hug her and kiss her and oh my gosh I think I rewound it twice as Artie walks out of this scene that Pete slaps him on the butt he does like it's a football team situation and you can hear Artie mutter under his breath don't touch me there it was so (laughs) funny it was so funny I just like oh it I love the fact that um, one, Artie is a human, and two, Pete is gonna be the younger sibling about it. Absolutely, he is going to be unstoppable in the teasing. Yes. Meanwhile, back at the college, in a hallway, Claudia arrives with a vat of purple goo, and Micah is glad. They walk together through a hallway, and They're clearly en route to steal the gold medal, which they believe to be the artifact. I almost typed kidnapped instead of steal, which sort of, I want to acknowledge that I did that because it gives a nod to some of Lena's work in the show in that the artifacts are somewhat sentient objects. They have emotions and they do things to specific people for reasons. And I think the show has done a really good job of baking that into our sense of things. Sure. And so as they're doing this walk, quick shout out to Claudia says, yeah, I talked to Pete. He kept singing about Artie in a baby carriage, <laughs> which <laughs> like it just tells us that Pete went on with that bit for a long time. But on a more serious note, Claudia asks about Micah's instinct because Micah is like, well, the coach is hiding something. And Micah says that she's she's done this a million times and that people rarely surprise you. I think that the placement of the line, people rarely surprise you from Micah at this point is really interesting because she immediately gets surprised after this line. She turns into the coach's office and finds a woman on her knees rifling through a trophy case. And lo and behold, she says, turn around and put your hands in the air. And the person does and turns around to reveal herself to be H.T. Wells. And she gives us the iconic line, Asian bearing, it seems are forever destined to meet at gunpoint. <laughs> it's so good. And it, it sets up their relationship so well. And the more I'm very Demi, and we know this, and as a result, I don't ship very often, but the more I watch this show on a granular level, the more I see the specific ways in which a romantic situation is set up almost immediately between both of them. I think even more so here than in the first episode. I agree. This is I that this, um, you know, the first time I watched it, like, I assumed that I was projecting because, you know, I want to see yeah. women together. But the more times I watch it, the more it is just obviously textual writing. It is like, the this is the romantic encounter. I also think it's well written in terms of being a queer woman and, like, clearly having a crush on someone and them having a crush on you, but having that little question mark of like, well, I don't want to misinterpret this situation. It's also really relatable to me as what I refer to as a nebulous queer. <laughs> like, I don't know exactly where I fit into most of the queer boxes, except that I'm Demi, but I can sort of see Micah having those same questioning. I am having a feeling I don't understand at this moment. 
And what I wrote is that Micah has a Tesla, not a gun. Mm -hmm. The warehouse doesn't authorize you killing people. So she could have and should have probably 100% shot first and asked questions later. And she probably would have if it was McPherson or anyone else who was a threat enough to be bronzed. But she didn't. I mean, maybe, but the next moment is so startling to me that, you know, HG says we're destined to meet at gunpoint. And instead of immediately incapacitating her, Micah starts choking her. And like, well, we go out for an act break. Do we? Okay, sorry. Which I think is, no, I think that's important. But you know how I feel about act breaks and the narrative. I just forgot to write it in. And right when she says we're forever destined to meet at gunpoint, you see Micah thinking and then we go out. So we leave not on the shot of H.G. Wells' face. We leave on a shot of Micah's face wrestling with what to do. Oh, it's so good. You're so smart, Jillian. It's like (laughs) you have a degree in film writing. (laughs) Thanks. I just think I thought it was such an interesting thing. So we have that whole act break to think about what we would do. And I think that's sort of the narrative way to express that whole time where we're thinking all of those shots, all of those thoughts are processing very fast in Micah's head. So that when we get back, she has made a series of calculations and then immediately shoves HG against a wall. But for us, it's not immediate because we're following the same train of thought that Micah would be. And I think it's also extra anxiety inducing because she's there with Claudia instead of Pete. Obviously, Pete can hold his own in a fight, but Claudia is not a a martial artist. And so she is not really going to take chances and... The, uh, the the Jamie Murray acting here is so good with so good. being, uh, you know, on the verge of losing consciousness, you can't breathe. And then the staying in character, even throughout that, that difficulty of that acting like you're being choked. She's staying in character and staying 1890s British. She says, I request oxygen to speak. And there's these... Oh, I heard something different. Did you hear prey request oxygen to speak? No, I heard brains require oxygen to speak. Oh, I couldn't hear exactly what it was. And the subtitle said, I request oxygen, but like Amazon subtitles are always wrong. So <laughs> you're the expert at uh, captioning, Jillian. I, I was not sure if it was I request or pray request or brains request. I don't know. I, I heard brains require, but they they all fit for the character. They're all either scientifically where she would go or verbally where she would go. Yes. But yeah, I just think I wanted to say a few things about this scene because this is obviously a very important moment Mm -hmm. in the fandom i want to acknowledge what i think would have happened if there wasn't a point of intrigue between micah and hg whatever nebulous feeling that might be i feel as though micah is immediately leaning towards not being compromised but acting in a way she normally wouldn't i think normally she would have tesla'd and handcuffed and then brought her back i think she might have even in a lot of cases cut the operation short and brought her right back to the warehouse. Yeah, absolutely. Especially after everything they went through with McPherson. I don't know. I think it was just a very interesting series of choices. Also, before she gets slammed against the wall, HG tries to be sly and is like, I know this is a bit awkward or we could do this. (laughs) Oh, 
Oh, I love her so much. I had a question for you, though. Mm-hmm. I can't recall. Has she ever met Claudia before? Oh, rats. I know that they were in the scene, I think, together where McPherson died, but I don't know. Well, we know that Claudia had the line, Artie says H.G. Wells is actually a woman. So Claudia knows who H.G. Wells is. I did look this up after production, and according to the wiki page, they have not met prior to this episode. The reason I bring it up is because I know that Micah's fascination with HG is apparent. Obviously, spending your whole life thinking someone is a man and finding out they're a woman is, you know, especially a famous person, it's it's intriguing. But when HG first sees Micah as an agent wearing, you know, pants and doing all the things that a woman of, you know, the 1800s couldn't really do. She's also intrigued. So to see a a two-woman team, you know, not being chaperoned by a man in the field, I think would sort of be a little arresting. Anyway, from there, Micah sort of gets her druthers and says, you are going back to the bronze sector. And HG has a great line, which is, why? What did I do? Not thinking about the fact that she killed McPherson, but clearly trying to make Micah question why she was bronzed in the first place, which is something that Micah clearly hasn't thought about. She spent most of her arc in season one learning to trust the warehouse and the people who work there that she didn't think to not trust the process that could lead someone to be bronzed. Absolutely. And as we've said before in law enforcement and more in military, but like, you, you have to trust your superiors that they made the right decision. And so, yeah, this is a, a, a point of new thought process for Micah. Speaking of which, Claudia sees that Micah's grip is a little strong and tells her to ease up, which she does, and then looks at Claudia and HG says, I'm not a killer. And Claudia immediately is like, has the definition of killer changed a bunch? Because you definitely killed a guy referring to McPherson, and H.G. legitimately seems surprised, like he was gonna kill you. He would have killed all of them except for Artie. That was the plan. He locked Pete and Micah in there, and they barely managed to escape, if I'm remembering correctly, but he placed the phoenix in Artie's pocket. The only one he cared about was Artie. But she wouldn't have even known about that part. True. You're right. Because she wouldn't have known. McPherson is the one who unbronzed her in the first place. So she would have had more insight into his plan than almost anyone going in. But HG continues to get into their heads a bit and says she's hunting for the same artifact as both of them, holds out the medal, lets them take it, and says, you know, if you didn't believe me just a little, you would have shot me by now, and gives like a cheeky little smile. Yes, and it's, it's so good because she does know Micah. She has that insight into Micah's character like we do. And so and again, no, I'm just saying, and again, we're seeing a very obvious and uncharacteristic blind spot for Micah, which she only has with HG because, okay, so she handed the artifact over, but the questions that Micah would ordinarily be asking are, how does HG plan to snag, bag, and tag an artifact? What was she doing there? And how could she be sure that they would show up to this particular artifact event? How did she get information about this artifact event? There's a lot of things that we know Micah asks questions about more regularly. So from there, when they have exchanged the medal, you mentioned that HG knows Micah would have shot her if she didn't believe her. 
and they have to escape the office. And HG makes this great, uh, you know, distraction. She she leaps out of the office and says, oh, coach so-and-so, you know, like she's actually helping out Claudia and Micah. But as she skips out to do that and essentially clears the way for their escape, there's this great exchange where Claudia says she's good. And Micah's like, yeah, in an obvious kind of way. And this is what I want to hyperfixate on. Claudia says, worked on Pete in London, which we know was HG, you know, kissing him and like being a femme fatale sort of thing, which like you could obviously take this to mean that uh, HG is going to distract the male coach. But like, I think Claudia is seeing that Micah is like distracted by HG and I think a viewer in 2000 and what was it, 11, a random person in 2011 not watching super closely might have just been like, oh, yeah, it's about the coach. But I'm like, it is not about the coach. And Claudia, of all people, like knows like she saw how close HG came into Micah's face and how different Micah behaved in the presence of HG. Yes. And also, let's not forget about the frenemy status because it's not just attraction it's also by rescuing claudia and micah she's also rescuing herself she's secured her own escape they can't follow her if they're escaping oh that's good coach so there's a lot happening in this very small interaction that both intrigues us more about hg but also keeps us suspicious as we should feel And I don't care how much I know about what happens in Warehouse 13. It is always reinvigoratingly exciting to watch this plot develop. Yeah, Jamie is a scene stealer. For (laughs) sure. So from there, we go to the warehouse. And Artie is on the Farnsworth uh, with Micah telling her about his appendectomy, which we see like Micah might have been willing to tell Artie what was going on, but she immediately turns to take care of yourself. Obviously an appendectomy is a a real surgery and Micah is worried about Artie's health. And just as they're about to prep Artie for that surgery, Vanessa, Dr. Calder, is distracted by her own Farnsworth call. Vanessa walks off to take a Farnsworth call and Pete gives Artie a dramatically raised eyebrow. Mm -hmm. Pete holds out this spinning top in a jar that's emitting changing colors. He goes, that's the Barnum top. Ba-bam! And wonders what it's doing at Artie's desk. P.T. Barnum is, I'm pretty sure, world famous. I don't think it's just an American thing because he traveled the world. Like a, yeah, Uh, famous circus, traveling circus guy. Yeah, and Pete says it's you, he used this top to increase shock factor in his sideshows by regrowing people's limbs and sometimes internal organs, which I Gotta wonder how he proved the internal organs thing. Yeek. <laughs> but he deduces that Artie is using it to regrow his appendix to get Vanessa to come and take it out. Pete says it's romantic and it is the most disgusting thing I have ever heard in my <laughs> entire life. You Hold on. You mean regrowing your appendix is disgusting or luring a female doctor to remove your appendix? Luring a female doctor to remove your appendix under false pretenses, you freaking weirdo, because you can't figure out how to talk to a woman? 
See, I agree, actually. So me and Joshua, Joshua is my partner, who is a man. We were talking about this recently, about how just like 10, 15 years ago, the like extreme lengths, like a man will go to extreme lengths to get a woman to notice him or to, as we're going to see with Pete in, uh, is it the same episode? Yeah, as we're going to see with Pete to continue chasing a woman who may not be interested in you like oh it's so heroic and romantic that he is going to not give up and try these extreme things but even 10 years later we would never say this is okay like we would be like red flag red flag do not ever date this man also it's just gross like cutting someone open and seeing them all exposed and touching their organs what about that makes you think and then this person will want to date me i just i don't understand i mean in fairness i do know several like med students and doctory people and they get completely unfazed by that experience it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't feel gross to them after they've been doing it for a living so like well it doesn't feel gross as a job but as a wooing tactic <laughs> i would disagree <laughs> I accept your disagreement. <laughs> and I agree with Pete's hilarious suggestion where he phrases this in the funniest way. He's like, oh, if only there was a social ritual of acquiring dinner or enjoying filmed entertainment with duds that have been milked, which really got me laughing because if you're not American, I don't know if everybody has milk duds. That's a chocolate caramel candy, but the the name is really funny and the way he really drags it out and gestures emphatically. Pete obviously tells Artie to ask her out, uh, but right as he's saying that, she comes back in. And says that she has to go because he's not showing symptoms of appendicitis, so a more urgent call has come up that involves a regent acquiring tungsten poisoning, so... She has to leave for Budapest. So many thoughts. So many thoughts about this all at once. First of all, I didn't look up tungsten poisoning. Sounds bad. I did Uh, look it up. It is extremely unlikely to occur, but is a heavy metal poisoning that might cause breathing problems, but is like extremely unlikely to ever happen. So that's why she says, of all things, tungsten poisoning, it's like very unlikely. Interesting. But I do think it sets up interesting questions about what regions do on the day to day, aside from, you know, have meetings in diners, you know, that they're actually out there doing things. And based on what we learn a little bit later in the series, but also what I would just theorize based on what's happening right here, right now, is they're out evaluating evaluating artifacts that may or may not be dangerous, that may or may not require an agent. They're actually actively doing warehouse-related things all the time. But that's not what I'm really here to talk about. <laughs> I'm so excited for whatever it is. <laughs> you don't know about Budapest? I'm so excited I mean, to I get know to share this. Budapest is. I know a lot you know. of random things that I don't know. I'm so excited to share this with you. So fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe may know where I'm going with this, but also fans of general things in the vicinity of things related to things that Joss Whedon has written will know about this. This is why we don't have a writer's appreciation quarter this episode, but we do have a little bit of a writer's investigation segment. (laughs) Drew Z. Greenberg, as we discussed in his original appreciation, worked for Joss Whedon on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Joss Whedon has a penchant for not telling us about things 
that have occurred in Budapest. <laughs> <laughs> it's very specific, and it actually set off a series of domino reactions that have led to the creation of the new Black Widow movie. So <laughs> this actually starts as early as the first season, seventh episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, when we meet a character named Darla, who says, Remember Budapest, turn of the century? You were such a bad boy during that earthquake. And the other vampire, Angel, responds, You did some damage yourself. In the original Avengers, Black Widow says, By the way, Joss Whedon wrote the original Avengers, This is just like Budapest all over again. And Hawkeye says, You and I remember Budapest very differently. In Peggy Carter, which is a spinoff, but still in the Marvel Universe, he says, Before the war, I served under a general... We traveled a great deal. We were in Budapest when I met Anna. Anna is Jarvis's Jewish wife who he rescued and like basically sacrificed his military career to get out of a Nazi occupied area. The reference to Budapest then appears in Captain America the First Avenger, The Avengers, Captain America Winter Soldier, Spider-Man Homecoming, Captain Marvel, Avengers Endgame, <laughs> Black Widow, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., The Shadow Series, Agent Carter, Time and Tide, the video game Iron Man 2, and three comics, Nick Fury, Spies Like Us, The Avengers Adaptation, Black Widow, The Prelude. So basically... All I'm saying is that Drew Greenberg knows what happened in Budapest, and whatever it is that happened in Budapest will be the focus of the new Black Widow movie, because such a buzz has around, has like arose around this whole thing, that now the question just needs to be answered. And so this is a weird, unexpected tie-in to both Buffy and the MCU. I love it so much. I do remember the line from Buffy, but as a non-comic uh, person, I did not know this amazing tie-in. Thank you, Jillian. <laughs> so yes. That is all. This has been your writer's investigation. <laughs> that was the Priceline Negotiator song. I didn't write that. So Vanessa has to go, but Artie tells Pete, don't come near me. I'll kill you. <laughs> so back at the college, Claudia removes the metal from the canister of goo. It just got gooey. It doesn't seem to have been an artifact. Micah points out that HG had nothing to lose by giving the artifact to them. And so Micah is not trusting her, very skeptical. Luckily, Claudia has a new lead. She swiped the personnel records and found that the coach has recently moved into way too nice of a house. And I did look this up because I was thinking of like football and basketball coaches and how those people do make way too much money at the college level. But a wrestling coach would not. So they're correct. Um, he has way too much money. And so Micah tells Claudia to continue uh, doing more interviewing. And this is where the tables turn. And Claudia admits she's like, it didn't go very well. I tried to be like you. I tried to be an adult. And like, she totally bombed it. And Micah's reaction is so good. Do you want to take it or do you want me to keep going? Oh, I'll take it. It's just, it's one of my favorite scenes in the entire show. We talked a bit last season about how this show surpasses the Bechdel test. Mm -hmm. Like, this is one of the most feministly written scenes I've ever seen. But it does involve talking about a man. But it's just like the coach and like basic plot exposition stuff. So I don't really even count it. It's not romantic. It's but it's just two women talking about feeling professional in their job and what they both have to offer. And Micah just laughs in Claudia's face. And it's like, why? basically, why would you try to be like me? I'm, I'm already here. Like, we have you. 
And she makes it very clear that she's not training Claudia to be just another Micah, another exact replica of Micah. She's training Claudia to be the best version of an agent that Claudia will be. Yeah. And it's very sweet and sisterly. And there's a lack of competition that you don't often see in scenes about women written by men. It's not oh, I see something different in Claudia, so now I feel insecure about myself and feel like maybe I don't have enough to offer or I will be replaced. It's, I offer something very specific to this team, and you could also, and it's very different from what I offer. This job in particular is so emotion-based. And I think Micah recognizes, and we'll see a moment that reinforces this for me a little bit later in this episode, But I think Micah realizes that she's actually quite limited in that emotion department. She has emotion to give and like love to give and she cares deeply about her team. But she has spent so long keeping so much behind a wall that a lot of her arc throughout the series is about her taking out bricks from that wall. Claudia is young and open and she's been through a lot, but she's still a person who wears her heart on her sleeve. And there's not really a need for her to be anything. Absolutely. Because her innate strength and ability to relate to people is something that Micah can't offer in the same way. So so I think it's it's not just funny that Micah laughs at her when she says, I was trying to be like you. I think it's rich and deserved and narratively warranted. Absolutely. I love that so much. And it's a good segue into how Micah quickly turns towards a tough love approach where she's like, all right, well, if you can't do it, not everyone's cut out for it, and blah, blah, blah. And Claudia, you know, is actually not wanting to give up. She does want to try again. And so she immediately responds as Micah knew she would and is ready to go again. And Claudia just looks at Micah and is like, I know what you did (laughs) anyways. Yes. Well, Micah responds to Claudia's, I know what you did there by saying, I know, because you're smart. We go back to Gary's dorm room where Claudia is back in her original outfit and see I love that you mentioned it I thought it was a goof I thought they filmed both scenes on the same day and forgot to change Claudia's shirt but what if it's a characterization move and it's brilliant that she goes back to being comfortable in her own outfit Jillian I love you you are so smart it's (laughs) like Jillian just said all of that to me through her telepathic tele- telepathy brain. Well, te- telepathy and nodding vigorously at the camera. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, that's that was my read of it too. And Gary seems quite surprised to see her and says, hey, what? We already talked. And she goes, no, you already avoided talking to me. Now we're going to talk. That's so good. And She's just immediately the Claudia that we saw when she broke into the warehouse for the first time. Confident, self-assured. She doesn't know exactly what everyone else is doing, but she doesn't need to. Because she knows what she's doing. And it's really Claudia being like, I'm going to full 180 take the opposite approach. And it works. He's totally disarmed and doesn't know what's happening. And he says, you know, in a town like this. And so we're assuming this is like... Uh, in Northern California, like there are some farm towns, like it's far more rural than here in Southern California. There's also like San Francisco, but you know. But there's a lot of small farming communities here. 
Absolutely. It's a very big state. And so he says that in their town, you can only really work in the quote unquote bottling plant. And now even the plant is about to close. So wrestling gave him options and maybe a scholarship. And the coach did start acting weird after the first guy died, but he wasn't acting guilty. He was scared. The minutia of it doesn't really matter because, again, it's Claudia reading the room and assessing the situation that gets through to him. She says, look, I know what it's like to feel like you owe someone for giving you options. But if something bad is happening to your friends, then he owes them too. And that really resonated He obviously cares about his teammates and doesn't want them to die. And he doesn't owe anything to a coach that may be facilitating that. And from there, we immediately cut to a parking lot outside where the coach is on the phone. And we hear him saying, it's too dangerous. They think I'm responsible. Maybe I am, but I'm ending this now. Which is interesting because I don't think that when Micah came a knocking, he was thinking that he was responsible at all. He was like, these are bad things that have occurred, but... Yeah, I agree. He's like, given what we know, he just thought he was helping his team. Absolutely. And then I just wrote, boom, card. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he gets very suddenly hit by a car, and all we see is a mysterious gloved hand, uh, kind of like, and the person came out of the car, picks up the cell phone, and drives away. And we go out on a vault card. Yeah, I think it was a new card. It I was think so. It was interesting. I liked it. And we come back in Act Four at Lena's B and B, where Pete is coaching Artie on how to interact with Vanessa like a human being instead of a gosh dang weirdo. And he basically just tells Artie to set up a date for when Vanessa gets back. And Artie looks like he is about to do it. He's like, "Wait, Vanessa!" And then he says. Have a nice flight. And my heart just broke. It just broke. Yes. And Pete also tells Artie, you know, when Artie's about to chicken out and then he's about to, you know, change his mind, he says, oh, okay, just be one of those agents that's obsessed with the warehouse. That always works out so well. But he just loses his nerve and Vanessa leaves. And there's a really sweet moment. I don't know if you caught it, but when she walks out, Artie just lays his head on Pete's shoulder. Like, he's just upset. It's so sweet. It's so sad, yeah. Back at the college, so we get just really quick cutting between all of our different plots, which I think was done really well. Um, We see crime scene tape where the wrestling coach was hit by the car. And guess who's there? H.G. Wells, glistening in the sunlight. In the parking lot, Claudia and Micah are watching coroners wheel the body away and realize that this was no accident. Micah says that means that someone else knows about the artifact when she spots H.G. Wells watching from the crowd. (laughs) The moment H.G. spots them, she books it, which I think is really funny. But then again, I just want to point out character moment for Micah. Okay, fine. Artie, she thinks, is in surgery. Why doesn't she Farnsworth Pete? She could I'm easily tell him. I'm yes. yes. And it's, in my opinion, because she knows Pete would say, what are you doing? Handcuff her and bring her in. And she doesn't exactly. want that advice. Exactly. Exactly. Very interesting. Yes. 
very excited. I don't know why. No, it's interesting. I just wrote, this isn't like shipping based on lingering eye contact that you see in some shows. These are actually character change motivations that I think are interesting. Anyway, HG spots them watching and I just wrote, she later days out of there. Um, Micah tells Claudia to keep an eye on the situation in the parking lot and runs after HG. Micah says... Basically, hey, I know you were bronzed for a reason. Like, what was, like, I have to take you in, essentially. You you did a bad, and you mm-hmm. have to go back to the bad place. And HG says, well, women are held to a different standard, which I thought would have changed by now. But that doesn't really impact Micah the way that she had hoped it would. Micah is like, okay, you did your research, whatever. Like, that's not worth even trying on me, which I think is good, because Micah... Micah does address feminism in real palpable ways, but that line is not it. That's like not, Micah knows. Yeah, she's like, I mean, I can hold my own. I don't, I don't need to align myself with the villain to get yeah. ahead to where I want to be. Um, and also she brings up her dead partner, Sam, which is just a low blow and I think is more off-putting to Micah than anything mm-hmm. else. Then Micah says something that shocks HG, which I think the question shocks her, but also HG is shocked to be shocked. Like she thinks she's planned several steps ahead and she wasn't expecting Micah to ask, what did you steal from the Escher vault? Which is yeah. great because we we knew that from last season and we were hoping it would be addressed. Yeah, so HG doesn't immediately answer. And so Micah just kind of turns her back like, yeah, that's what I thought. Like you're a bad guy, you're planning something. And... We see HG kind of hesitate, and then she replies, and I think Jillian is so right to point out that she was just not expecting this question, and she says, I took back what was mine, and Micah's like, what, more cabaret, like, blah, 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 and it's like hardcore goading HG at this point, being, you know, what we would think of as playfully rude, but Mm -hmm. immediately becomes based on HG's facial expression, very cruel. She gets more vulnerable than we've seen her in a while. And she says, the only power it has is over me. And she takes off the locket and sort of holds it out. I don't think she really hands it to Micah, but Micah takes it. And there's like this moment on HG's face where you can actually see her sort of like give a small gasp. Like, I'm not ready for this to be out of my possession right now. Seriously, it was so microscopic, but so profound the way that she hesitates to give this and doesn't really want to give this vulnerable possession over to someone, especially someone who's her frenemy. It's not like everything else we've seen from HG so far. It's not calculated. It's not thinking ahead. It's not a show of emotion. She normally has like sort of this smug, I've thought of this and you haven't sort of vibe and this is just very raw and real and it's nice to see that kind of range so she opens the locket and says the only power it has is over me and there's a picture of a little girl in there and hg reveals that it is a picture of her daughter christina and we don't really get a lot of information about that but we do know that it's not the 1800s anymore and absolutely regardless of what we do or don't know at that point we we know that a girl who was you know 10 in the 1890s is dead now and hg does mention that everything that ever mattered to her is gone except the warehouse and i i noticed and i wonder if you noticed this that we see that vulnerability and that hurt 
when she's saying it's gone. And then she maybe puts on a fake smile and says, I want to come back and work there again. Her facial expression changes. And it's really noticeable to me when she's saying, mm-hmm. that's why I'm doing this. I'm proving I'm a good agent. Like, especially in retrospect, seeing her try to convince Micah in this way, it kind of, I think was purposeful, really strong, trying to present multiple emotions at once from Jamie. I think it's really good. I don't think it was her original plan. I When we get to the end of the season, I'll, I'll reveal a bit more about what I think Please her plan do, is at this point. Because, yeah, I also think her plans have changed over time. Um, when we watch yes. the episodes, we'll go through that. Yes, but I think that she realizes, for her, this is an opportunity. And I think that Micah sort of clocks that, but... In the moment, what Micah is looking at is a mom who has lost her child, which is obviously the hardest thing you could be in the presence of or experience. And I can really tell that at that moment, she's missing Pete's presence. Mm -hmm. If Pete was there, he would have said the right thing or done the right thing. And Micah just like avoids eye contact and is like, well, that's not really possible because you can't in any way it's not really my call and she just can't it's like an enormous thing Mm -hmm. that she's facing and instead of facing the enormity of it she's like well I'm sorry you lost your little girl but I can't I can't do anything about this before anything else can happen a car starts driving toward them yes and Micah and HG both seem to pull out guns. Uh, Micah starts shooting at the car, but HG strategically looks up into the uh, skyline of the surrounding buildings and shoots up. It is a grappling hook. And this is our, again, very visibly romantic scooping Micah into her arms and flying out of harm's way. I mean, this is that scene (laughs) where the male lead grabs the princess and they swing across the gap. Like, this is is that. And Micah is really mystified uh, and says... But enjoying it. Like, visibly enjoying it. And she says, a grappling hook. And HG says that she designed it herself. And so they eventually come back down to the ground very dramatically and beautifully. And HG has a great line that's just, I miss the horse and buggy days. Progress is often overrated. <laughs> and they sort of get their bearings and Micah, she's visibly swooning. Like, she just sort of has to take a minute to get her head on straight. And then she just sort of plays off the look she's giving at HG and just goes, yeah, it's a... It's a little old-fashioned. And HG just goes, well, not when I invented it. It was such a good line. And I think just to speak to Micah swooning a bit, maybe TMI, I don't know. But if you're like a late-blooming buy or pan or dummy person and you've like only dated one gender and then you're an adult and you date another gender and you're like, oh, wow, women's skin is really soft. It's really nice. And, like, you realize (laughs) that, and you're like, this is so much nicer than kissing a man. Sorry. Like, I think we're seeing that on Micah's face. And I don't know. Again, we can all project in what we want. But when you don't expect or don't really know how something might feel, and then you're like, 
Woo, it's really nice. It's really nice to be held by Jamie Murray. Like, And something instantly changes between both of them, too. Micah's intrigue, I will say, at H.G. Wells, which was present from the moment she found out H.G. Wells was involved before she even found out H.G. Wells was a woman, clearly has grown. And now she's interacting with this thing that she's only read about in books, you know? like It's like a fictional world come to life. It's a lot to take in for her. But I think that two things have also happened for H.G. She's shared something very personal about herself with a warehouse agent, which I don't think was ever in her plan to do. But she's also experiencing how smart and capable Micah is and that she doesn't have a lot of the baggage of trying to prove herself as a woman that H.G. probably had to, you know, go through at the same time. And so instead of playing more games and lying some more, they just get honest with each other and have sort of an intellectual sparring match. HG visibly goes from thinking, well, I've saved the day. I'm in the clear now. And then her face just goes, oh, man. And she goes, oh, you're still wondering if I just set this up to prove my innocence. And just, it's cool. I like it. I like it because then Micah immediately says, that thought crossed my mind between I'm gonna die and oh I'm flying (laughs) which is so perfect because of course I mean yeah it's a it's a sci-fi show but like yeah it's pretty what's the word I don't know I was just thinking startling well it's wondrous in a very warehouse 13 sense like yes it's a sci-fi world but it's not sci-fi like a lot of sci-fi shows where the science is the same every time it's a different thing with every artifact. And the grappling hook wasn't one that we saw coming. It is truly a world of endless wonder and it's baked into the show. Yeah. And so they have their great intellectual banter. And I like, I think we should emphasize both of these things. There is an emotional and intellectual connection between these women. And then there's also a romantic one. And maybe those things are connected and maybe they're not connected. It's the beauty of what my friend calls sexuality being a beautiful tapestry. We have many, many threads in there. And ultimately, Micah agrees, okay, I'll work with you, but only if only to keep an eye on you, essentially. Well, except that the dialogue is reversed. Basically, Micah sort of accepts okay, we will be working together. But in return, HG accepts, okay, you'll be keeping an eye on me. Like they both know the things that are entangling at this point. I really like it. And from there, we go back to the warehouse office where Pete enters fiddling with the doodad, which are like, I don't know how to describe them, but my grandma had one that I played with when I was a kid. They're like these glasses that you hold up to your eyes and you click a sort of switch on the side and it shows you images inside the glasses oh i know what that is oh it's got a it's got a bunch of suffixes and ends in scope i will remember it later the word we were looking for was stereoscope it'll be in the show notes but he bringing it in to show Artie saying that it'll help with something involving being sweaty which makes sense because when he comes back Artie is sweaty and on the floor lying on his side like clutching his stomach so I think he was starting to not feel well and Pete was like well you did this to yourself with an artifact I'll find an artifact to counteract it was sort of the off-screen storytelling happening there and so back at the college there's some great like off-camera audio behind the door where Micah says this is called breaking and entering and she says it always was Yes. Which is so good. And then they break in to the office 
and they take different areas to search. And Micah revisits. She's still thinking about the grappling hook. And HG says, you were coveting my grappler, which is so good. And yeah, I mean, there's more dialogue between them. Again, this is just, it's such a fan favorite episode for uh, establishing the relationship between these women. Yes. And Micah corrects her, not coveting, admiring. And... HG is immediately trying to turn this to a strategic advantage, saying, you know, my tech skill could come in handy in the warehouse, which I don't think is going to be her winning tactic when there's a Claudia, you know. No. But, again, Micah disarms her with the question, why were you bronzed? HG does not want to answer. She just says, the scales Lady Justice holds are more easily tipped than one knows. And I think I think Micah would have asked more, but I don't think she was ready for another bombshell like this is my daughter who cannot possibly be alive anymore i think she's visibly distancing herself from emotions in the exact way that she didn't want claudia yeah to behave you know absolutely and this is i love that you said hg won't replace claudia because there's this moment that i'd never noticed before where hg (laughs) finds a laptop and picks it up like as if it's As if it's an inanimate, like, brick and, like, flips it over to, like, physically examine it. And Micah's like, here, let me do that. And I think that's great because we do see that HG has had time to, uh, you know, to kind of interact with some new technologies and, like, touch screens and things that make sense. But, like, a closed laptop is so funny because if you are an actual Victorian person, it will literally just look like a flat piece of metal. And it's so good. <laughs> it's, I didn't even think, like, you went to her having time to interact with touchscreens. My immediate thought was, she has been doing all of her research at a library. She has asked someone, what is that? They've set a computer. And she said, where can I find a computer? And then she just spent a lot of time at a library. Like, that was my thought process. I think she did, because that's kind of what we saw when we saw that shot of her in the coffee shop, like examining her old possessions is like, she's going to cafes and public spaces and kind of interacting with people like, like a foreign exchange student would, like just learning about the things. Yes. Well, when Micah helps her open the laptop, she's able to pull up pictures of Philip, the person who died in the gym that we saw. He's undergoing what appears from photos to all be taking place in the college setting from a, I want to say this in a non-offensive way. He is an attractive guy the whole time. There's nothing wrong with this man. There's nothing wrong with him, but he is certainly not physically what you would expect to see on a wrestling team, he doesn't yes. have toned muscles. His And then all of a sudden, he seems to have extreme cut muscles that are very well defined. And the timestamps of these three photos that show a progression show that this not only happened all in college, it's all happened within a three-week time span. To elaborate on words on surfaces, because... They are using a fictional program, I imagine, called Photo Viewer 2.0. And (laughs) the date on these photos are July 27th, August 3rd, and August 10th of 2010. And the air date of the episode was August 17th, 2010. So these were actually the dates of the airings of the past three episodes of Warehouse 13. 
which I think is very clever and wonderful. And I love that. The notes on the laptop, it's a, like a folder file explorer program with files labeled homework folder, biology lab three, sociology one, chem lab 2.2, lab notes, essays, photo album, math homework, history notes, history project notes. So some person actually designed this whole screen to look like a college kid's computer. That was my quick words on surfaces. It was a great words on surfaces. So from there, we go to a super quick scene at the vet where Pete is at Kelly's office with Artie, who is in extreme pain, and they argue a bit about what on earth is to be done. And he's like, well, there's not really a doctor in town. He's His appendix is about his appendix is literally about to burst it's either kelly or the barber and she's like you know i mostly do spaying and neutering right but <laughs> in reality i don't think a vet could do definitely not an appendectomy at all so eventually she's like all right i guess i'll have to figure it out and <laughs> she calls over croissant boy which mm. is a good callback for pete and enlists his help as a prep nurse and he realizes i mean he's got to do it so he just gets his younger sibling energy on and instead of freaking out just goes okay but I'm not shaving anything which is excellent and also funny if you've ever had an animal who gets surgery and they shave a little patch on them (laughs) yes back at the college gym basically the stakes have escalated and Micah Claudia and HG are all together And they see a fridge with a padlock on it. And so it happens very quickly. They're kind of like, more wrestlers are getting sick. We need to get to the bottom of this. Why is there a padlock on this fridge? And there is just this great, quick decision. Micah grabs a weight, like for exercise, and uses it to smash the padlock. And HG shoots a quick look to Claudia of like, did she really just do that? And I think it's so perfect. It's so good. Um, And they immediately get the fridge open and it's full of the Boiling Point energy drink, which looks like children's juice. It's like a very funny prop that they've selected. And Claudia says, every time I saw Gary, he was chugging one of these. And on repeat watches, you will see that this bottle is throughout the dorm room and they set it up wonderfully. They don't shove it in your face and they make it more like this is how you would really experience it if you were investigating this open world. We talk a lot about how the show is sort of steampunk, but we don't talk a lot about how the show is legitimately a serial mystery. Figuring out what the artifact is is a legitimate mystery in most episodes. And so they don't ruin the mystery by telegraphing very obviously what the answer is. Yes. So they do realize it's the drink. That's what's causing the the wrestlers' deaths and other symptoms. And so Micah says, go warn Gary. And Claudia's on it. She's bonded with Gary a little bit. And then we get, you know, the revelation. The artifact is in the drink, which freezes us on the frame of Micah. And that turns into a photo still that I think it's Artie's hand putting into a bag. So another great kind of uh, act break. I love it so much. And we come right back into act five. We're in the bottling factory and we're talking about something that HG and Micah are assuming that it is an artifact that accelerates muscle growth. 
and they're talking to Dr. Mahoney. Yes. Who is being sort of cagey with his responses about things is the way that you'd expect about some sort of proprietary yeah. thing, at least in the United States. And then he makes there's a depressingly legally accurate thing that <laughs> occurs in the exchange, which is you're testing this on students. That's illegal. And he goes, It's a focus group. And I'm like, oh God, that's true. Like the way that, you know, food and drink is regulated here is not Not good. Not good. And it's like you could definitely claim it's just a focus group and not be fined for anything. It's not like medicine here. So, you know, for someone who didn't know what was going on, the name of the energy drink is Boiling Point, which is just an unfortunate... It's very unfortunate. Yeah. And obviously, I think it's it's tongue-in-cheek from the writers because... Yeah. They know where this is going, but like the advertising of the the words on surfaces throughout the factory are like reach your boiling point, and it's like no, that's a that's a bad thing. Like yeah, and it's not like overpowering or like an indictment of a group of people. It's just like something I noticed as we get closer to the climax of this episode, and just as they're sort of digging into what's going on with the doctor Mahoney. Uh, Russell, Jeff Russell, shows up again, the person who took the coach away and then wound up talking to H.G. a little bit later. Yes. Basically, the doctor is explaining the drink and saying, you know, well, the financial stuff, that's not my idea. Like, I'm the science guy. And Jeff emerges to say it was my idea to financially support the wrestling team and use the drink on the wrestlers. So we saw Jeff earlier and uh, he asks, Micah's like, oh, that's you. You're the benefactor. And he says, miss. And she goes, agent bearing, which I always love. And now that I'm a doctor, it will be, I, I'm waiting for the day where someone who is mean calls me miss. And I just say, it's doctor. Um, <laughs> but uh, she also introduces HG as agent Wells, who works under me and does everything I say. And HG gives this, like, obsequious nod that is so good because she can't say, no, I'm HG Wells, the author of the most famous Victorian novels. Like, she can't say that, obviously. Exactly. Uh, and so Jeff uh, says, Coach Tappan changed my life, and now I'm a big CEO. And so I wanted to give back, like I'm helping the team. And he says, oh, let me invite you back to prove to you that this is harmless. And HG says, oh, that might be a trap as he walks away. And Micah says, it usually is. <laughs> Just great. <laughs> the respect that these women are growing for each other is so excellent. Back at Lena's, mm -hmm. Pete and Kelly are joking and laughing and Artie is sitting healing and we're actually seeing you know kelly and pete be nice to each other it's a fun change kelly makes fun of him a bit about how he's sort of squeamish and woozy at the sight of blood and pete takes the joke well he does not care i really like kelly says you're a little girly but sweet the degree to which pete is unbothered by being called girly is just a delight he just shrugs he doesn't even laugh he's just like whatever I don't that's what i noted is that i don't like ever hearing girly as an insult obviously 
But Pete doesn't take it as one, and that's what made me less offended by this. And Kelly steps out to find some soup. Yes, uh, she puts Pete in charge while she's out, which makes Artie laugh. (laughs) Pete just, like, expands his belt and, like, pats his stomach a little bit, and he's like, that's right, old boy, and it's just, like, a weird, funny thing to do. Then Artie gets a little serious and says, when I died in that tunnel, tell me you didn't think just a little bit. Poor Artie, he died alone. And I was like, I really don't think he I don't think he that. thought that, no. And, and we, and, sorry. We, no, it's fine. We just, we spent a lot of season one talking about the parallels between Artie and Pete. And I think it's really nice that the writers acknowledge and address the fatherly relationship of Artie to his agent's very early on in the show and we confront emotions head on and I don't think he ever thought that about Artie and he says the sweetest thing Artie says I don't want you to miss out on having a real life like I did like I missed out essentially and Pete just says I would be honored to have a life like yours and Artie responds I'd be honored if you'd try for a little more this is such a good scene and it just melts me And I also would shout out to, I don't know who does this, but the sound designers for this, they play the quietest, like, I don't know if it's a clarinet or something. It's like a quiet little riff of the doo-doo-doo, like the warehouse song of being like, this is the cue, not only for the warehouse, but for the whole show. The whole show is about your family and about love and respect and admiration for a team of people who want to save the world like it's so good unlike a lot of shows where when you hear the theme song you're like okay and this is what's going to take us to the next scene so this is what we're thinking about it has a more thematic purpose in this show we haven't fully addressed this but i think it's clear enough at this point that emotions create artifacts Mm -hmm. like We've seen it over and over again. You put an emotion out into the world and sometimes it gets so big that it creates a physical impact. For me, the way that they play these little riffs in the show are sort of like an an audio representation of some emotion being released. Like that was a big conversation. And instead of letting those emotions fester, they just talked about it head on and it sort of went away. It didn't have to go out and manifest as something. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's not the same as the Bechdel test, but if we think about the conversations that men have in sci-fi shows, this conversation between Pete and Artie is so different than, like, any other show that you would stereotypically think of on the same genre or in the same ballpark. And it's not happening under pressure or at the end of the world. It's just a normal, it's just relatively, for them, it's a relatively normal day. Yeah, And they're having a normal discussion about emotions. And yes, yes, snaps, claps, I love it. Yes, so this takes us back to the college. (laughs) Claudia's knocking on Gary's door, which we now see has a picture of Gary on it. But that's fine. (laughs) I think it's, I, you know how your dorm RA puts things on your door. Mm -hmm. He looks visibly sick. And Claudia tells him, you look like Bantha Poodoo, which is a Star Wars joke. And she tells Gary, spread the word. You guys need to stop drinking those energy drinks. And then she jumps straight to the point where she has put together, you mentioned the bottling plant shutting down. I need you to tell me about that. And the music picks up. We cut right back to the warehouse. Basically, we're going to get like a quick montage of all of these different, um, I don't know, A, B, 
Is there a C plot? They're all wrapping up at once. Yeah, they're all intermingling. <laughs> Kelly is annoyed that Pete doesn't have soup, but she brings tea. And Pete asks her out. And <laughs> with an increasingly casual series of suggestions that begin <laughs> with dinner and end with hanging out in the candy aisle of a hardware store. And she immediately gets very uncomfortable, says, I specifically had a bad breakup and moved to a place where I wouldn't have to deal with meeting any cute guys, which I just, my notes on this scene are very short, but I just wrote bad coping mechanism. <laughs> like, Oh, really? Because I wrote been there. <laughs> not like well, I like moved it's... on purpose, but when you're like, I am not going to date for at least a few months because I am fed up with this right now. Well, like, yeah, that's normal. Actually moving to the middle of nowhere to avoid interacting <laughs> with men is a little extreme. Or to assume, I mean, everyone has their type and this is not my type, but if you move out in the country where men, like, work on a farm all day and you're into buff men, you're gonna just find buff men everywhere. Like, not a good call. Yeah. Like, you know. Yes. Exactly. I just thought it was funny. And from there, we go right back to the bottling plant where we seem to have gleaned that the drink is safe. And Micah is asking if there's test samples of the drink from every batch, which makes sense because, you know, you have to test them regularly to make sure. Yeah, make sure there's not good. any contamination or something. And they, Micah specifically, immediately spots this super old iron <laughs> ladle just like hanging by a vat of the energy drink it's and so old and can i just say that like i mean it's warehouse 13 but like if i worked at a bottling plant i would be like does this contain lead i'm not gonna dip this into a batch of beverages but you know we figure out why it is later but it's really something it's really something it really is. I mean, I suppose it could be sterilized because it's like metal, but dang. And HG immediately recognizes it. She says, have you ever heard of Godfrey's Spoon? Uh, he was a Viking prince. It's forged from the armor of fallen warriors and meant to gain strength. And that just communicated so much to me so fast. I've done a lot of research about Vikings lately. Don't worry about it. But it just immediately conjured this image of like ladling out these huge spoonfuls of mead and like sharing them with your comrades you know absolutely and so i think this is a good time introduce our artifact expert for the week dr diana knight is an illustrator and medieval archaeologist working in northern california she holds an ma and phd in archaeology and is the creator of the viking coloring book project which moves students of all ages beyond the violent stereotypes of the past right so godfred haraldson is kind of one of those shadow figures. Like we know him a bit because he's the son of a king that's known reasonably well. He's located in what we consider to be the modern Netherlands and okay. the southern extent of Denmark. Although he's supposed to be his father's king over Denmark for a bit. Um, but it, Danish kingdoms are moving really quickly at this point. He and his parents are, they're baptized. What ends up happening is the elites are are being baptized first because if you baptize the elites at this stage of Christianity, it's going to trickle down into eventually into the, the lower echelons of society. So he's, he's a member of that class. So he would be baptized into the early medieval Catholic. Okay. Christian. He's closely mentioned in a couple of Carolingian sources. So um, 
mostly things like uh, mentioning troop movements and stuff like that. So he's pretty obviously in the circles where he's, he's dealing with uh, being over people and having power over them. So that, that in one way supports the concept of the spoon <laughs> as presented. Um, but part of, he ends up being king. There's not much known about his time frame because the sources are just, they're really jumbled for that period. But I think part of the reason why Godfrey's been chosen is because he's in this really changeable period. There's not much known about him. And it's enough of a nod to, to authenticity as far as people that um, it's, it's making a good story. So that's, that's something to keep in mind. So <laughs> they ask, where is this ladle from? And Jeff is like, I don't know, it's always been here. And he, again, a real person in real life would not be like, a spoon can make people die. Like, that's not a thought that occurs to you. But just at that moment, Claudia bursts in to let them know, like, Jeff has the motive to keep the desk quiet. There's a huge deal going through where he's going to sell the factory to blah, blah, blah in another state. And, um, you know, I, I didn't write down all the dialogue, but... A lot of things happen very fast. It's very fast. And I don't know, like, I don't have a problem with it, but it's a lot of finger pointing... You know that scene in Rocky Horror where it's like, Brad, Janet, Rocky, Brad. <laughs> it's like, it's that for a hot second really quick. Yeah, and it's it's not in a bad way. Like, it gets the point across of everything that we need to understand. And it sort of puts us in the same headspace as Jeff, who doesn't really understand what's going on, but knows that the Dr. Mahoney, he's not a great guy, and it has something to do with the ladle. And so Jeff, who's actually a good guy, says, well, I'm going to get that ladle. Yeah. And he starts wrestling with it to do the right thing and give it to the authorities. So we clearly have like this Viking notion of masculinity, warrior culture, strength, etc. And then I know, and I, I, I looked at your scholar page to kind of, you know, see, see what would be good to ask you about. And it's clearly, you know, this oversimplification of what the one thing that a popular audience knows about is the Viking warrior. Viking masculinity is something that everybody thinks that they know about. Um, it's a lot more nuanced than that, like, of course, as masculinity is today, of course. And it's very important to remember that humans express their, their gender on a spectrum. Like, and in the past, yes. <laughs> We're increasingly finding uh, evidence for this. I'm, I'm not a specialist in it, but there are definitely specialists that are working in this. Um, a lot of them are ECRs, so they're, they're early career. Um, some of them are still in grad school, so you're gonna see them coming up pretty soon, so it's, it's good. Um, <laughs> part of why we grab onto that concept is because it says more about what we want to be as a modern society, as part of our values that hold onto the past. Now, does that actually mean that people in the medieval past considered that to be a strict part of their identity? Like that masculinity, that over-masculinity that we consider to be um, like the, the warrior culture. And you can picture scare quotes like all over that bad boy. Um, <laughs> because it's, yes, it does exist, but it's not, it's Viking was an occupation. Viking wasn't a race. 
Viking was something that they did seasonally for the most part. I mean, we're not, we're not talking about something that occupied all their time because we have certain types of sources that have, have um, continued to, to survive, have preserved, not only textual, but, but you know, across the board, archeological, not everything's going to stay. And certainly things that were intangible in the first place um, are not, it, it occurs, we find the evidence for, for quote unquote masculinity, quote unquote femininity, um, crossing of gender boundaries as we would see it today. Like we find evidence for that most often at life changes. So things like burials. Unfortunately for burials, the evidence is more about what the family wanted to see than what the dead person actually was. So we have to consider what kind of statements needed to be made in the context of their time. The, the notion of strength and masculinity, um, and maybe everybody listening has heard of this. Uh, if you've heard of Joseph Campbell, if you have a, a shadowy hero figure in the past, it's, a, it's something that we recognize and it's, it's a global recognition. It's part of how we, we gain our information. It's part of the stories that we learn when we're little. Like the heroes do this, the heroes have great feats of strength. The heroes do have interesting weapons or tools like the spoon. Um, but this, this is a concept where the writers are, but they're, they're trying to draw on a past that, that has hero elements in it, but isn't necessarily known about as well as we want it to be. Like, so there's this great big question. Every time you have a great big question, especially in sci-fi or fantasy in general, what's gonna happen? You're gonna fill that hole with cool information. Not always real, not always real, but cool information. And the wrestling goes badly and they wind up shoving Claudia into the vat of contaminated energy drink. Oh, and Claudia falls in, and they really threw Allison Scaliotti into a, a vat of <laughs> tea or brown-colored drink because she is soaked in her full clothes and has to climb out, which, like, climbing in wet skinny jeans is really hard. I'm like, kudos to you for filming this scene where she's climbing out of the vat and Micah helps her, um, but clearly we know the drink is contaminated and at first I'm thinking well she didn't drink it right but the more of the drink you take in the more effect it has so HG points out that the drink is soaking directly into Claudia's pores and then we see that special effect of things moving under your skin take hold right away which is really bad and it's actually very interesting to see both Micah's and HG's reactions to what's happening because Micah cares so much about Claudia and at this point on another level that she didn't even have to care about before because we know all of Micah's baggage about you know not letting anything happen to her mm -hmm. partner and now Claudia's her partner in addition to already being this young woman who she cares for and feels responsible to as, you know, sort of a mentor figure. So it's just, Micah's immediately very rattled. And 
I would posit this as a moment where we can tell that HG's motivations are not necessarily steadfast throughout the entire season. I think she goes through some changes because she is visibly upset by what is happening to Claudia. She does not want to see this young woman hurt. And it's not about personal gain or what she can get from the warehouse at this point. But you know what's interesting is that I think what I saw personally in HG's behavior was that she immediately went into kind of scientific problem-solving mode. She's like, it's sinking into her pores. We are going to have to combat that. We are going to have to address and solve this problem. And obviously, as a scientist by trade and inventor, like her mind, she is deeply emotionally disturbed, but her mind is going right to the solution. And Obviously, uh, Micah goes to solutions too, but of a different variety, like sh- the the detective variety, not necessarily hard science, which is, I think, awesome to see HG do in this scene. And they talk a little bit about what is causing it, and HG's immediate response is, okay, well, if this has a scientific sort of effect, then we should come up with a scientific sort of antidote. And they argue a bit about okay, well, there are amino acids in the drink that he told us about that are supposed to help with muscles. And HG starts thinking about amino acids. And Micah points out it. this research was all done a long time ago. And she's like, have amino acids changed? Like, I don't think they are heavily impacted by technology, basically. And they sort of get it together fast. There's, it's not one of those, oh, we're two women in charge, so we're going to cat fight. It's a, this is a problem. Okay, we've resolved it. Next. And shout out to the fact that HG worked on amino acids for the island of Dr. Moreau, which I, I don't think is factually true. But what's far more interesting is that mm-hmm. the island of Dr. Moreau is about physical transformation, about turning turning people into animals, etc. And so like this trope, and I think we get... Uh, Claudia calls one of the boys Hulkling at some point. Like we get a Hulk trope. We get a, you know, we get a lot of these like Victorian monster ideas and their cultural resonances. But it happens very quickly that uh, (laughs) the doctor is like, I didn't want any of these. And she goes, well, it's your lucky day, Gerald. And they take (laughs) him. I thought that was so funny. I did not hear that his first name was Gerald, but it was great that they're going to cobble together some kind of antidote. Also, just if HG really is a Victorian, it's very insulting to call someone by your first name in that context, unless you are intimately acquainted. So good for her. Fascinating. Also, we can see Micah evaluating HG here when HG isn't looking. And in this case, I don't think it is romantic. I think it is thoughtful. I don't think romance is on anyone's mm-hmm. brain at this particular moment. But she, Micah does very clearly take note of the fact that HG's immediate response was to solve the problem and help a person, which immediately sets her apart as a different beast from McPherson. Yeah. Really, really making her wonder if the bronzing was justified at all, because she's not unhinged. She hasn't shown any desire to hurt anyone in Micah's presence, except for, you know, what she claims was a selfless act of defending this person from McPherson. So I I just think it's it's interesting. It, it makes the relationship more complex. And from there, we go out and come back to our final act. Yes, where Micah and Jeff, 
who has become very quickly disheveled. Poor Jeff. <laughs> they are combating Claudia's burning. They have her in a tub of ice, which made me so cold just looking at it. And they say they're fighting a losing battle that Claudia is burning up. But just in time, H.G. Wells comes in with an antidote. And she says, I know that one mission won't change your mind to Micah, but she has the antidote for Claudia, and this is what we want and need to see. So Claudia gets a very quick antidote. She It takes effect immediately, which is great. And you just see the relief on everyone's face that Claudia is going to be okay. And the tension was actually excellent here. Because when I think back about this episode, I remember being Claudia sicker for longer. Me you too! I, the fact that this all happens in 45 minutes is very amazing to me. And that this is all the final act. Like, the tension lasts in your mind. And there is the act, like, the cut to commercial and you're like, oh no, Claudia's sick. Uh, what's going to happen? Like you, you feel all of that, even though it's a very short amount of actual time. Yes, and Micah is just tears in her eyes, visibly relieved that Claudia is okay. Like stroking her hair in sort of like a maternal fashion. I mean, which is sort of a departure for Micah. She doesn't get physically affectionate with most people. And she sort of has kept Claudia sisterly, not sort of motherly, but like this is a young woman who doesn't have another female figure in her life to really be around. And once Micah sort of gets herself together and composes herself, says, well, you know, we should actually thank H.G. So, and she goes to like turn and look around and H.G. is gone, not looking for thanks, not looking for okay, now we can go back to the warehouse together and everything's fine. She's just left the grappling hook and a note that says, you can keep this and you can owe me, basically. And yes, the, the note that says, keep it, you can owe me is so good. Your brain is so good. I love your brain. I love your brain. Well, uh, back to uh, she's gone and at the warehouse... Uh, so things are wrapping up really fast. Basically, HG is gone. Claudia and Micah return to the warehouse. And Artie is extremely displeased. He says even if he's in the middle of a brain transplant, that Micah needs to tell them that they crossed paths with HG Wells, which we've obviously already talked about. Claudia chimes in and says, well, you know, she saved my life. And Artie has a great line that says, well, McPherson saved my life countless times. It didn't change who he was. And I would point out that this line is super good because I think he actually is meaning to say, well, H.G. Uh, Wells killed McPherson, remember? Um, but then he turns it to McPherson was a bad guy and so is H.G. But I think there's dual meaning in this. And I think that Artie is still deeply hurt by uh, McPherson's betrayal and also his death all at once, which is really hard. I think that you are 100% correct, but I actually wasn't focused on that at all. My focus was still on Micah because she does so much with her face all the time into telling mm -hmm. you how she's feeling. And I think that she immediately realizes that she got caught up in the spell of H.G. Wells and was like, no, you're absolutely right. I'm an agent and I should have thought of that. Yeah, I think her, yeah, her face definitely says that to us. Well, the scene with Artie ends with him telling them, good work on the ladle. And Micah and Claudia high five. It's so and cute. And they're, they're all ready to disperse for the night. But Micah hands Claudia a folder of admissions information for South Dakota University, which is not a real school, but USD is, University of South Dakota. Shout out there. And 
Claudia is like, why the parental shove? And Micah says, you need a college degree to apply for the Secret Service. And it's such an it. encouraging way to do it. I love it so much. It's so cute and so correct. And I love so much about it because first of all, I don't think Micah is one to pile on. And if she is, it's one line here when someone's already making an argument. Like if, if Artie was like, well, I think you should go to college. And the Micah thing to do would be like, I agree. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't go out of her way to tell someone else what to do with their life in that way. But this is just job specific. It's not preachy. And it's, it's just sweet. It's not saying everyone needs to go to college or you specifically need to go to college to be successful. It's like, well, if you want to be a little like me mm-hmm. and join the Secret Service, well, then this is what that would take. It's just, it's so sweet. It is. And so Micah says she's going off to the warehouse and she invites Pete, but he says he has a date with Kelly. And this is what we mentioned earlier. Micah's like, Kelly turned you down. And Pete's like, yeah, she did, but sometimes people surprise you. And again, this we see Micah's face because we're getting oh, a, yeah. a callback to the people rarely surprise you in a romantic sense. And Micah is thinking about HG. Um, Clearly, I literally wrote in all caps, so gay. <laughs> <laughs> so gay. And, and like, with the whole time, like, I don't know who... Sorry, I don't know who can watch this because you have Vanessa and Artie, you have Kelly and Pete, and you have HG and Micah. Like it's a there's a there's a theme in this episode, and everybody is running parallel with their you know their crush, their frenemy in this episode. Yes, I mean yes, immediately. I think the only one that's not really a frenemy is Vanessa, and even then, it's a more complex relationship, and. Yeah. The thing is, you say you don't know what kind of person. The answer is me. I'm the kind of person because I don't look for romantic things in stuff. I just I enjoy them to, pleasantly. To be negative in that. No, I no, just... it's not negative. But it's like when I went and watched it specifically with an eye to like the nuances of every scene, I was like, oh, this is all very gay. Like, <laughs> yeah. And so. This cuts us to Artie playing the piano. And remember, Jack Kenny told us that's really Saul Rubinek. He can play the piano very well, and they incorporated it into the show. Vanessa comes in and says, you should be resting because she has just learned. Also, I would be so mad uh, as a non-medical doctor if I had lots of things to do and I had to rush back on a plane to see somebody and then they're like oh I got that solved already like what a waste of Vanessa's time he promises oh you can do the next one which is (laughs) funny but he does call out after her and we will see that in a second but we cut we're gonna have one like I have one bullet point lines cut cut to back to cut to back to like it's going to happen mm-hmm. really kind of fireworks. It doesn't feel choppy. It feels like a braid, you know? Like oh, everything's coming together. What a beautiful metaphor. Thank you. So yes, from there we go to Pete, which he is threading a needle very gracefully because just based on personal experience as well as stuff I've seen in media, there are a few things that I hate more than when a woman says no and the guy is like, but what if yes? But what if you change your mind? Like, no. I hate I hate it so much. And so I had forgotten what happened at this very end part. And I was like, oh, he's going to go there and, like, 
try to woo her and she's going to say yes and then it's going to be this romantic thing. Blech. But then when he actually shows up, he doesn't ask her on a date. He just says, I eat food. I assume your species also eats food. We have to do it anyway. We might as well do it together. Maybe at the same table. And it's just the lowest stakes situation. There is zero pressure on her to say yes or like do anything she's uncomfortable with. He's just saying, hey, I am willing to go extremely very slow. And he just says all of it with that. And she finds it clearly disarming. And she says, okay, fine. Don't get any ideas. And he says, oh, I almost never do. (laughs) And she agrees to eat at the same table. Nothing more. And says, we're going to the Chinese place on Main and we're going Dutch. And he has a great line, which I love, which is, can we go to the Dutch place on 5th and go Chinese? Which is so funny. I also don't know if going Dutch is a phrase outside of the States, but it I just was going to means... say, I don't know if it is either. I've only heard it here. Uh, for any listeners, it just means that you split the bill. I don't know why. I don't know I don't why really... either. It just means that like you, you avoid the traditional gender roles thing. Maybe Dutch people are super progressive. Let us know. I Well, see, the thing is, I just want to be clear that while America is well known for having very problematic stereotypes of a lot of groups of people, we don't have a ton of stereotypes about... Dutch people? Dutch people no, at all. <laughs> like, I, but my dad works for a Dutch company, and it's, it's literally never come up. So <laughs> that is a weird American turn of phrase. So I thought I'd share it. I I actually learned it from this episode, but, you know, I heard it after that many times in my life, but this was the first place I heard it when I was 19 or whatever. So some of the other things we saw, like, interspersed with that were, one, Claudia reading a brochure and filling out an application for university, and two, Micah in the warehouse pulling down a box and it is a beautiful box, an Art Nouveau style, like beautiful carvings on it. It's clearly, uh, you know, she's got the grappler. It's the size of the grappler. And she puts the grappler into the box. And we see it. Th- this, this longing only gay people know. She has <laughs> kept the note, the sticky note, without even folding it or wrinkling it. She has kept this note perfectly intact and leaves it on the grappler. Like, she's fingers put it there and I have kept it there exactly where she left it for me. (laughs) Like, that's what I'm reading from this. Again, possibly projecting, but she does that and then puts it in the box thoughtfully and then picks up the note and like holds it close. And it's like... Oh yeah, it doesn't go in the box. But I did have a different read reading of why the note was that way okay not necessarily like it doesn't eliminate your note it's just a different thing that I was focusing on that it was just again uh, you have thoughts about things related to a bi identity I have it related to like a nebulously queer identity where it's just like I have emotions I don't understand and I know she's probably bad but I also do feel the note is correct I probably do owe her Ah! but what I don't know what to do I kind of I'm not willing to extricate myself from this debt because I, I like her. Ah, and I don't know what it means. So Honestly, I think both readings are true. All readings yeah. are true. Like, yeah. Ah, and it's so brilliant. This is why it's so good to have a best friend and talk to them best about friend. television because yes. so much is happening emotionally 
in between the lines, not through the excellently written dialogue, which is there, but through the whole episode and the arc and the emotional arc and the facial expressions of every single human. Oh my gosh. And that's the end is Micah looking at it and then dark over beautiful. Such a, such a great episode. And the funny thing is, you know, sometimes the writing of the episode really brings the emotional weight to it. And it, look, I love Drew Greenberg so much. He, Anyone who knows me knows I'm a pretty big fan of all the writers of Buffy. But the acting in this episode is what prevented it from being a fun, light, poppy episode and Mm -hmm. actually made it deeply emotional and well-rooted in meaningful things. And like you said, the braiding together of each individual character's deep emotional arc also takes what... So with with our artifact expert, we're going to talk about masculinity and strength and warriors and like... Like, that could have easily been the theme of this episode, but it was not. And, like, it's there and it's interesting. But this episode where the artifact of the week is, like, very funny is not funny in that way at all, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, yes, that is all we have this time. We'll see you next time, agents. Bye. Which, wow, that's a big old spoon. We'll get there. (laughs) I can't wait to get there because me and my co-host were like, wow, they call it a spoon, but it's a ladle? Um, I've not seen ladles that big for the (laughs) period.